we're starting a new series, and uh, the series is on relationships. And so some of our pastors are switching churches, and you're going to get to hear from uh, some of our other pastors during this series on relationships. Next week, I think Steve Lombardo will be here, and I'm not sure which relationship he's preaching on. But uh, I, I hope that you appreciate that and enjoy it. So this morning, I've titled our message, We Are One in Christ, and our, uh, our relationship that we're talking about is community this morning. And uh, uh, relationships, I usually think of uh, more personal things. I think of marriage or dating or families or friendship, but this relationship is kind of a relationship at large. Uh, you might think of a relationship in the round, so to speak, uh, when we talk about community. It, it's, it's much larger. So community is a word that we hear a lot. Uh, and we hear it all the way from the president on down to uh, our, our local places. People talk about community. Um, the dictionary defines community as a group of people uh, living in the same place or having a particular characteristic in common, uh, a feeling of fellowship, whatever that means, with others, and as a result of sharing common attitudes, interests, and goals. So the word combines two words, common and unity. Common, unity, community. That's how we get that word. And uh, the common unity can be focused on just about anything. Uh, a community can be, you know, focused on almost anything. Uh, there are gated communities. And I love when I hear somebody saying, well, I live in a gated community, to remind them, so do all the prisoners in the United States, you know. <laughs> so it's just, just one of those things that I like to throw out there. Uh, uh, gated communities, there are horse communities. Uh, I was riding last Saturday through all of these beautiful horse communities. Uh, I was dying in the wind on my bicycle, but uh, wishing I was on a horse. And uh, there are religious communities, there's retirement communities, rural communities, uh, recreational communities, online communities, uh, communities that are together for good, and a lot of communities that are really are surrounding uh, some deviant behavior. So I found some names of some interesting communities, so I thought I'd just share a couple of those with you. And these are actually towns, which are communities, uh, and I just thought it was really interesting how they got named. There is uh, Accident Maryland. <laughs> so I think it's actually based on a real accident, so... Uh, why do you live in accident? Uh, how about Boring, Tennessee? <laughs> Where do you live? Oh, I live in Boring, Tennessee. Uh, weird names. Uh, Rapture, Indiana. <laughs> There's nobody there. <laughs> so, uh, and why Arizona? Why? <laughs> I mean, W-H-Y. Why Arizona? Where do you live? I live in why? Why did you ask? Uh, and Zigzag Oregon. I mean, there's all these weird names, so uh, communities. But I just finished a great book about community. Um, it's called Once Upon a Town by Bob Green. Some of you may be familiar with Bob Green. He used to write for the Chicago Tribune. Uh, it's about the miracle of the North Platte community. Anybody know where North Platte is? Okay, it's out in the western part of Nebraska, right off of uh, I-80. And it's not a very large town, but the Union Pacific Railroad goes through that little community of North Platte, Nebraska. Every passenger train, passenger trains used to go through there, they don't anymore, but every passenger train would stop in North Platte for a quick maintenance stop. And so... Ten days after Pearl Harbor was attacked, right at the beginning of World War II, uh, the first troop train was scheduled to go through that community. And the North Platte people, that community, decided 
you know what? Uh, we think these are some of our boys from Nebraska that are coming through here. So we are going to meet that train. We're going to greet it. We're going to provide coffee and sandwiches and cakes and cigarettes and whatever these soldiers need to, to make them feel, you know, loved and welcomed. And so they did that. Surprise, surprise, they weren't soldiers from Nebraska. They were from Kansas. Uh, but it was such a wonderful occasion that that community decided that they would do that for the entire duration of the war. And most troops that fought in World War II went through North Platte on a train. And so they did that. They greeted every one of them several trains a day tens of thousands of volunteers from all the little communities, and especially North Platte there in Nebraska, rationing. You know, this was a time of rationing, and yet these people came with food and everything they could give. It's pretty astounding what they did. Six million soldiers they fed in the duration of that war. And you know, all many, many decades later, when you would talk to a World War II soldier. And, and a lot of these men were reluctant to talk anything about the war. But if you brought up the topic of, topic of North Platte community, they would, <laughs> they would remember fondly with great feeling. In fact, every man that was interviewed shed tears when he thought about that stop that they had made in North Platte on the way to the war or perhaps on the way home from the war. What an amazing story of a community. And so I thought to myself, you know, that's a wonderful picture of community. But there's a community that's even more amazing than North Platte. Uh, more amazing than any other community. It's the church. And I'm talking about the church at large. Our community. And some of you are thinking, you know, I don't know, Dave. <laughs> The church has got a lot of issues. It's got a lot of problems. Well, yes, it does. It's got you, <laughs> and it's got me. There are a lot of problems with churches. But I have to remind you what the Lord said. Jesus said, you know, he didn't come for people without problems. He came for those that are sick and those that are sinners and those that are in need of a Savior. He didn't come for those that say, I don't need a physician or I don't need anything. He came for us. And there's two Greek words that really describe the church. You've heard both of them. But for our purposes, I just want to be very clear what the church is. Ecclesia is a Greek word, and it means called out ones. So the church is a called out community. And we're called out of the world's system. Now, don't, don't go to sleep on me here. Stay awake. This is important stuff. Uh, I think sometimes the church has thought, you know, we're kind of called out of the world, and so we're going to go hide. We're going to our, bury our head in the sand. That's not what God intended. He wanted us not to be part of the world's system, yet we're to be in the world and be part of the world, very much so impacting our world. That's, that's part of the church community. And uh, besides ecclesia, there's another word. It's called koinonia. You've heard of that word. It literally means fellowship. And it comes from the word communion. It's a transliteration of the word communion, the Greek word communion. And so when we, as the body of Christ, have communion, that's a picture of fellowship in its purest form. So that word describes a oneness, kind of the ideal state of the the, of the church, uh, the ideal state of fellowship and unity that exists within the Christian church, the body of Christ. You have to realize, and you know, I have, I, I have criticized the church in my life, but I was given pause to look back and think clearly about the community of Christians and what it really means. It's really unique, the body of Christ. It's a living community. And it's been living for some 2,000 years. <laughs> How many communities last that long, if you think about it? And it's thriving, even when enemies try to destroy it. In fact, 
when enemies try to destroy the church, it seems to thrive and grow. That's very unusual. That's a different kind of a community. And it's never, you're never able to stamp out that community, even though people have tried to do that. And it's impacted the world for good in so many ways. Many of them are seen, and many of them are unseen. <laughs> and this community, it came to us in a person. It came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. That's astounding. And a person, <laughs> you know who Jesus Christ is, who died on the cross yet rose from the dead and is living. So that makes us an incredibly unique community. <laughs> Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and God himself. And this community will last forever and ever and ever. And God himself will live with us, will dwell with us in eternity in heaven. So my prayer this morning as we look at community is that God will teach us just a couple of new things about community, probably nothing that you haven't heard before, but that he'll refresh us anew about life in the church and about God's community. So just pray with me for one moment as we ask Father, our Father to teach us. Lord, would you teach us again about what it means to be part of, of you, Christ, in community and part of your church. In Jesus' name, amen. My wife looked at the uh, pullout from the notes, and she gasped when she saw all the slots that had to be filled out. Uh, so that, uh, Kath, you don't need to be concerned. We're going to finish on time, and uh, we'll go through this pretty quickly, actually. So don't gasp when you look at that, people. Uh, life in community, and I put the word God's community. It's not in your notes, but I'm going to use that. Life in God's community, which is the church, calls for individual regeneration. Okay, I want you to understand that. We're talking about community, but it calls for an individual aspect, uh, individual regeneration. Uh, it's important to remember that even though we're part of a body, we're called individually into the church. Uh, it's, it's important to remember that we're, we're newborn. Uh, that word regeneration is like... It's not like when your water softener regenerates. We're talking about becoming a brand new person, a brand new creation. Uh, it's astounding. You know, Jesus talked to Nicodemus about you have to be born again. So this regeneration is an amazing picture. And, and we're reminded in the community of, of Christ that it's not based on our family heritage. You know, just because you're a Griffith doesn't mean you're saved or a Heidel. Or, or any other name in here. It doesn't depend on our family heritage. Uh, it doesn't depend on our country of origin. You know, well, I'm from the United States. I'm a Christian. No, no, no. That doesn't, doesn't work that way. It's an individual calling. It's not our ethnicity. You know, well, I'm a Caucasian of European descent. I must be a Christian. No, that's not how it works. I want us to turn to 1 Corinthians just for a moment chapter 1, and I want us to see, uh, it's really clear in 1 Corinthians about the call on Christians, and you know it's not very flattering <laughs> uh, at all, and it's very real though, and it's, it's from uh, the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 26 to 31, so, so follow along. It says, for consider your calling Brothers, he's talking about the community, the church. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, Jesus, you, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
That's the calling that we have to come into the body. It's not because of who we are, what we've done. It's because God calls us, and he chooses all kinds of different people. Uh, so we were called into fellowship. That's the first sub-point. Uh, uh, if you're still in 1 Corinthians, look at verse 9 of that same chapter. It says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship, the community of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. A reminder once again, you know, you can be a, a Jew or a Baptist or a Catholic, that means nothing for salvation. That's not how God calls us. So how in the world do you know you're being called? Have you thought about that? How do I know I've been called by God? I think back, and it's very clear before I came to the Lord in my life, I remember God's call. And it came to me in so many different ways. You know, we hear God's preaching. So you may be saying to yourself, well, I don't feel called, but here you are this morning sitting under the preaching of God's word. And so in a sense, God is calling you this morning. He's calling you into his fellowship. Hopefully you're in his fellowship. If not, he's calling you into his fellowship through the preaching of the word, through the preaching of the gospel. Perhaps you've heard God's word in a different venue. And in God's word, we're definitely called. I know men that have picked up a Bible like this in the prison who had never, never read a Bible and immediately sensed that God was calling them to salvation. So we, we are called in so many different ways. Uh, some people talk about that small, still voice. <laughs> and God speaks to us sometimes through his spirit. And he speaks into our mind. And I know that happened to me when I was running from the Lord. He would at times call me very clearly. So God calls us in so many different ways. And sometimes he calls us through the love and the actions that we see from the community of Christ, from the church. And hopefully people see that in us. So God calls us into fellowship with himself. And then, in response, we call on him through faith. <laughs> Romans 10 Turn to Romans 10. That's just before 1 Corinthians. Romans 10, uh, verses 8 through 13. I'm reading some scripture. I don't usually read a lot of scripture, but these are important for us this morning, really important. This is Paul writing, and he says, starting in verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's amazing. Call on the name of the Lord and he'll save you. He calls us into fellowship and in turn we call on him to be saved. Kathy and I, our lifestyle, when we first met each other and were first married, did not reflect the Lord at all. And yet God, in his amazing grace some 40 years ago, called us very clearly. And this very passage of scripture that I read led Kathy and I one night after a Bible study that we didn't want to go to to, to open up the Bible and look there and say, what in the world is the Bible talking about? Is Jesus really calling us? Do we really need a relationship with Jesus Christ? We came to this passage, Romans 10, that if you confess the Lord, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and confess him with your mouth, you'll be saved. And we got down together on our knees and asked God to save us, and he changed us. Not immediately, 
but he's been working on us ever since then. He calls us into fellowship, and we call on him through faith. And then we become fellow citizens together. <laughs> I'm so glad I've heard Bill talk about, you know, a vacuum. Uh, if, if you have a vacuum, then anything can come in. And so God didn't call us into a vacuum. Okay, you're saved, and now you're on your own. He called us into a fellowship to be together with other citizens of the same community. Uh, we're, we're fellow citizens together. And I love that the Bible says uh, that every tongue, every tribe, and every nation is called. Huh. Isn't that beautiful? Uh, that's what the body of Christ is meant to look like. Uh, and, oh, I pray that the church would reflect that. And it does. Not everywhere, but, but in many places it reflects that. Uh, I think of the Aurora campus and what God is doing there with bringing in refugees from every nation and all around the world. It's amazing. That's what the church looks like. And, and I thank God for that. And I thank God for the, your heart for the world in this church. And, 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 I, and I love that about our church. But Ephesians 2, uh, go a couple books past Corinthians and you come to Ephesians 2. It talks about citizens. And uh, if my friend Cesar Gomez from Paraguay was here, this is one of his favorite passages because it describes what happened to him when he got married to a woman from the United States he met in the Peace Corps in Paraguay. He came to the United States, and God invited him into a different kind of family, the community of Christ. So this is his passage in Ephesians 2, uh, looking at verses 12 through 14. It says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth or the community of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, that's the new covenant that we're talking about, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. <laughs> so there was a time when Gentiles weren't part of God's covenant, but because of the blood of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, now he's called all of us to be his children. And then just drop down to verses 19 and 20 there. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So that's how we get into the community. Individual regeneration, becoming new people in Christ, putting faith in Jesus Christ. He calls us, we call on him, and we become part of a, fellow, a group of fellow citizens in the church. The second thing I want us to see this morning is that life in God's community is characterized by righteousness together. Now, I could have just said righteousness, but it's really important that we understand when we're called into a community our righteousness works together with one another. So I want you to understand that. And if there's a failure in the church in America, I think it's in this area of righteousness and togetherness. So we talk a lot. <laughs> it's easy to talk a lot as you think about what's on the TV and politics and the election and everything that's coming up. We talk an awful lot about our country and its condition and the lack of morality and, and, and here's what I have to say to the church, uh, to God's community. <laughs> are we salt and are we light in the church? Are we that? You know, we're called to be that. And I, I wonder sometimes, are we really that in our communities? Do we live the Sermon on the Mount? And You know, we don't have time to preach the Sermon on the Mount, and you're probably glad for that. But do we love one another as a church? Do we forgive one another? <laughs> uh, do we stand out in a dark world? Or do we just look like everybody else? And uh, 
You know, my favorite illustration, I think one of my favorite illustrations of this is the church at Angola Prison, where I've been so many times, and you've heard so many times about it. But think about this. Angola Prison, uh, some 6,000 men, used to be the bloodiest prison in America. Uh, maximum security, 90% of the men that are there will die there. So what's the community like there? What happens in their community? How do we see righteousness together? Because there's a strong, strong group of churches in Angola prison. Well, here's just a, a little picture of it. When, when a man comes to that prison, and it's an all-male prison, first of all, he knows he's going somewhere he's never been, usually, and uh, he has no idea if he's going to come out of there alive. Probably won't. He'll probably die there. Uh, he has no idea what to expect, and there, people are normally just scared to death. And so they come in to the prison, and who do you think are some of the first people that greet them? It's the inmate pastors from the churches at Angola. They're part of the reception area uh, at that prison, which is unique. <laughs> and they carry with them a little bag of toiletries so that these men can have a toothbrush. Because you don't come there with a toothbrush. You don't have anything when you come there. You have to work to get it. <laughs> and, and so, and these inmate pastors not only give them some toiletries, but they put their arm around them and they tell them, you know what, you're going to be okay. You're going to be all right. There's people here that care about you. And there's people here that will love you and take care of you. That's the church. That's the community. That's what it looks like. And so life goes by for this prisoner. And while you're in prison, especially uh, if you're a lifer, those that are in your family begin to die. And you've heard me say before, when, when a man's mother dies, when he's in prison, that's usually his last connection with his family. It could be the last person that really cares about them. So who cares for those men, whether or not they're part of the church? Well, it's the inmate pastors that are part of the church community. Whenever there's an official word that somebody important in that family has died, one of the inmate pastor comes alongside, and they give this message to this man, and he's going to break down sometime, somewhere. And they tell him, this person, this important person has died. And the inmate pastors, they put their arm around him and they pray for him. And they remind him that there's a community that cares about him, the church. And, and, and I was thinking, and then they come to the end of their life at Angola Prison. And I've told you about the hospice care down there. The hospice care down there, all, the, all of the volunteers, almost every one of them is a Christian from the churches there in the prisons. And these are the men that lay next to the men that are dying, who they probably never knew. And they do the things for them that only a family would do for them in their care, washing them, uh, feeding them, caring for them. And they stay with them until they die. That's a picture of community. That's a picture of a church. And then a lot of the bodies are never claimed. Families don't want those bodies or they don't have the means to bury them. So they're buried there at the prison. Well, who buries them then? You know who it is? It's the inmate pastors, the church. They come around this, this man who's gone. They march out behind horses, you know, with a case on, singing hymns. They get to the graveside, and they bury this person with dignity and love and compassion. And I look at that kind of a picture, and I think to myself, that's what the church is supposed to do. And that's what we do. And so in Angola, they, they stand out. That's that uh, righteousness together thing. <laughs> so here's what it looks like from the scriptures. Life in, in God's community character by righteousness, uh, characterized by righteousness together. The first thing I want you to see is the habit of worship. <laughs> the Bible's pretty clear about that. It says we're, we're to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. And you know how we do that? By meeting together. We need to be in the habit of meeting together to worship and to pray and to hear God's word together. You know, there's people, and even in, in our church that I've talked to, a couple of people, well, you know, I'm, I just stay at home on Sunday morning and I'm watching this preacher. And you know what? I'm sure they're a better preacher than I am, and that's great. But you know what they're missing? 
they're missing the connectedness of, of sitting next to another person in a body of Christ and worshiping together. That's what the body of Christ is about. It's, it's like we're in arm in arm in a sense. And we pray together, and we hear together, and we respond together. And so that's one of the, the, the first thing that I want to say about righteousness together is that Christians come together to worship. <laughs> uh, it tells us uh, in, in Acts 2.42 that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and, and prayers. And that's encouraging to one another. And it says we're to do that especially as the day of the Lord draws near. So we talk about how, oh, woe is me, the church, you know, we're in trouble, America's in trouble. Well, come together. Encourage one another as the day draws near. That's what the Bible says. Be in the habit of worshiping together. And Christians are to take a humble approach. <laughs> That's real righteousness. One more passage here in Philippians. You know where Philippians, I think you're in Ephesians now. If you just turn over to Philippians chapter 2, listen to the description of our Lord. Philippians 2, starting in verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. We could just stop right there. That would make us totally unique in the world righteousness together if we always consider other people more significant than ourselves let each of you look not only to his own interest but also to the interest of others have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the mind that we're supposed to have. And brothers and sisters, you will be unique in this world. And <laughs> that kind of righteousness together will stand out if we are indeed humble because the world doesn't talk about humility much. The world's all about pride and who I am and what I can do. And we're to always help one another, it says, about righteousness together. Galatians 6.10 says, As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, <laughs> and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Wow, that's a big, <laughs> that's a big undertaking. Do good to everyone, but especially to those that are part of your fellowship. That's what the world needs to see in the church, is that we love them and we take care of one another. <laughs> and we're to live in harmony. Wow, there's a big one. James says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. So how many of you, when you think of the church, think of peace? Come on, raise your hand. There's, okay, there's a couple of us that do. Then there's a lot of people that don't. They don't see it all the time, peace. They see, uh, you know, uh, friction in the church or problems in the church. And, and, and the Bible tells us we're to live in harmony and, and uh, we're to be peaceable, gentle. We're, we're to be open to reason. Wow, <laughs> how many of us are so not so set in our ways as Christians that we can't listen to reason. That's what Christians do. We listen to other people. Listen. Be open to reason. Uh, that's something I need to hear. Full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Harmony in God's community. What does the world see in us? And therefore, we'll have a harvest of righteousness. <laughs> uh, James says a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace, by those who make peace. Well, when I think of a harvest of righteousness, I think of the fruits of the Spirit. We don't have time to list them, but if you look in Galatians, you'll see the fruits of the Spirit. That's who we are as the church. And you know there's like 59 one another statements in the Bible? I think of those when I think about a harvest of fruit. I can't list all 59 of them, 
But you know some of them love one another, serve one another, accept one another, forgive one another, bear with one another, encourage one another, teach one another, pray for one another, and on and on and on. God, make us different from the world in this area. Make us stand out like light. Make us righteous together and help us to season the world with your grace. But even in this kind of a community, God's community, life in God's community requires caution (laughs) because there are some that are bent on ruin. (laughs) Think about that. Okay, you know I was in Vietnam, and I've told you some of this before, but in Vietnam we had Vietnamese workers that would work for the armed forces of the United States. They would wash clothes and do all kinds of tasks for us. And by day, in the daylight, they were in our midst and they were working. At night, these same people, we called them Victor Charlie, which means VC, Viet Cong, and they were fighting for the enemy. And so they were in our camp during the day. They looked like they were our friends. They were serving us in a sense. But once in a while, we would catch them in the company area, pacing the area off and counting. And we realized that they were taking information to the Viet Cong, who were in the mountains and shooting rockets and mortars at us to tell them how far it was to the helicopters or how far it was to the officer's hooch. And so they were caught in these things. And the enemy was, was pretty slick. Most of the time they got away with that. And you know what? God is actually warning us that there are spies in the church. There are people in the church that can be our enemies. And, you know, we don't talk much about that. Uh, we talk about the church, and, and, you know, it's not necessarily a pervasive thing, but it's very real because God warns us about it over and over again in the scriptures. So one of the things that John says, the Apostle John says, he says, test the spirits. He says, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And you know that. You know there's false prophets. We're aware of that. People that that don't speak the truth. But we, as God's community, you and I, we're responsible <laughs> as members to know God's word. <laughs> if you want to spot a lie, you need to know the truth. Right? Isn't that right? So the more you know the truth, the easier it is to spot a lie. And so we're to test the spirits. You are responsible to say, I wonder if Dave's preaching the truth. And you need to be checking against the word of God to see if I am preaching the truth or whoever you're listening to. We're to search the scriptures like good Bereans and make sure that these things are indeed true. Paul says in the book of Galatians, he says they're spies. He uses the word spies. (laughs) He says there's false brothers who have slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. (laughs) And you know what? These people that wanted to spy out the freedom, they wanted to tell people, you know what, it's not just by grace through faith. You've got to do something to be saved. They were lying to the people. And so we need to be aware of that. There's a lot of people in this world that will tell you the same thing today. You know, it's not necessarily just from God and his grace and your faith. You've got to do this, X, Y, and Z in order to be saved. Well, check it out against God's word. <laughs> uh, Beware. We're to beware of that kind of teaching. Jude tells us they're scoffers. You know what the word scoffer means. Uh, scoff means to kind of make fun of, like, Ugh, are you kidding me? That stuff, that's just ridiculous. That's scoffing. <laughs> and Jude says in the last time, and some people think we're in the last time, I'm not so sure, but they say there will be scoffers who follow their own ungodly passions. And Jude says it is those who cause divisions. And he calls them worldly people, devoid, that means not having, 
devoid of the Spirit. They don't have the Spirit of God in them. They're causing division in the church. We need to beware of that. <laughs> beware the enemy, Satan. Jesus taught very, very clearly that there would be tares. We don't use the word tares anymore, but how many of you have a garden? Come on, raise your hand. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of gardens in here. How often do you have to, what is it that we have to keep pulling out? Weeds. I hate weeds, man. Uh, my sister has this huge garden in Virginia, and they took off on a vacation, and I decided I would give her a gift, and I would sit on a bucket and weed. I mean, they, they live off the land, and I weeded their whole garden plot, and she came back, and she was just astounded and amazed, and I was sore and sunbeaten and hated weeds. But weeds grow in the middle of our vegetables, and Jesus taught that weeds, tares, would grow up with the wheat. And he told us to beware. You know what he said about it, though? He said it was an enemy that had sown the wheat, I mean the tares, that had sown them right amongst the wheat. Satan does this. We need to beware. <laughs> we need to test the spirits as the community of God. Last thing, life in God's, oh, I'm sorry, not the last, second to last. Life in God's community must be caring with the goal of restoration. Now, I think this really makes the church unique, this whole idea of caring and restoration. Think about that. What organizations do we know that are really caring and wanting to restore people? You know what? The church is supposed to be that kind of a community. <laughs> uh, in order to reflect our Lord, we've got to be forgiving one another just as God in Christ forgave us. Hmm. How did that work? We were angry at God. We sinned against God. We were wrong, right? And yet he reached out to us first and said, you know what, I forgive you. I send you my son, Jesus Christ, to forgive you. Wow, that's what our forgiveness is to look like. Somebody wrongs us, we don't wait for them to apologize. You know what, I'm not going to talk to that person until they apologize to me. We go to them first. Say, you know what, I forgive you for, you know. Oh, you hurt me, but you know what, I still love you. We, we reach out first. That's what the community of God looks like in restoration. We're to welcome the weak in faith and to bear with the failings of the weak. Romans tells us that, 14 and 15, the first verses there. Welcome the weak in faith and bear with the failings of the weak. And I've got to tell you, that's the thing that convicted me this week when I was preparing this message. All of a sudden, when I'm preparing this message, it hit me. Dave, you've got some people in the church that you know are believers that you don't let them off the hook because you think that by now they ought to be doing X, Y, and Z. They should be better. They should be different. And the Word tells me that I'm to bear with the failings of those that are weak. That convicted me personally a lot. Father, forgive me, you know. The world should be in shock and awe, really, at how the church forgives and restores one another. <laughs> Tertullian, if you've ever heard of him, he was an early church father uh, back in northern Africa, way back at the beginning of the church. And one of the things Tertullian said, look how they love one another, talking about the church community, and how they are ready to die for each other. What an amazing statement about the church. So we're subpoints. We're to restore in a spirit of gentleness. There's a verse in Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, wow, that's big. If anyone, any brother, <laughs> anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Anyone, any transgression with gentleness. Does that define you and me as a church, as an individual? And we're to speak the truth in love. You know, you hear me talk about that, I think, all the time. But Jesus said, you know, if a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. 
So we have a responsibility to speak truth to one another, but it's to be done in love and respect. And the best way to do it is face-to-face and alone. That's where we start. (laughs) Restoring one another. Speak the truth in love. It says, rather, speaking the truth in love were to grow up in every way. So speaking the truth in love is part of growing up. So I do a lot of leadership training, and this is one of the main principles that I teach leaders. Be willing to speak the truth to people, but do it with respect. I use respect or love, whatever. And there's a lot of people that are afraid and say, oh, man, I just I hate confrontation. I'm not going to tell people this. Uh, I think God's Word says that's part of maturing and part of growing up in the Lord as a Christian, as part of restoration of relationships. Be willing to speak the truth but do it in love and with respect and care. All right, and the final thing under there is James says, bring back the wandering soul. (laughs) It's a beautiful picture. Whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. (laughs) So if we see somebody that's part of the body of Christ and they're off and doing their own thing and we know that they're in trouble, We're to go after them with love and respect and say, hey, wow, you know, I care about you. I'm praying for you. Should you be doing these kind of things? What's going on in your life? It's so easy to just let people go. But I started out by saying, the world should look at us and be shocked at how we reach out for one another, even when we've failed one another. That's the picture of the community. Last thing. Life in God's community will be cause for rejection from the culture. This isn't a fun one. This is not the, this isn't what we're looking for, is it? (laughs) Rejection. But think about it. This is really the crux of the issue. I think that if we truly live in community, the community of Christ, I think it means making choices that are going to cost us a price. Otherwise, why did Jesus talk about, you know, picking up your cross and following him? That's not a pretty picture. That leads to death. But that's the picture of the community of Christ, is that we make those kind of choices. I think we need to examine ourselves here today on that. You know, are we really willing to stand up for Christ in our community? And if we're not willing to stand up, and some of us are not, some of us, oh, well, you're too embarrassed or you're too ashamed. Or, or, and I've, I've been there, so I can, I can speak to this. And we just don't stand up because we just, you know what, it's difficult. I don't want to be different. I don't want to be called out. And how can we think that if we're not willing to stand up in our school, in our job, in our workforce, how can we think that if it ever came to that time where we were called to stand up for the Lord, to suffer or to possibly die, how could we think we could do that if we won't even stand up in our culture? And that's what's happening around the world. Christians are being called upon to stand up or lose their head. Stand up and lose their head. (laughs) They want them to deny Christ. This is important. Jesus, getting to our sub-points, Jesus described as man of sorrows, I challenge you to read the description of Jesus in Isaiah 53, the man of sorrows. He suffered outside the camp. Isaiah said he was acquainted with grief. He was despised and rejected. This is our Lord. It said his visage, his appearance was was marred. He was beat up in so many ways, our Lord. (laughs) And then in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, Just like the unclean bodies of animals, there were animals that were sacrificed. They wanted their blood is what they wanted. So they took the blood out of the animals to sacrifice, and then they took the carcasses outside of the camp, outside of the community, and they burned them. And that was unclean, unclean, stinky, no good. We would call it awful, O-F-F-A-L is the word for that. And that's the picture here of our Lord It says, uh, Jesus suffered outside the gate. 
of the Jewish community in the same way. Check it out in Hebrews 13 if you need to do that. And he suffered for us on our sakes on a hill called Mount Calvary. And you know what it says after that about Jesus' suffering? It says to us, we are to go to Christ outside the camp and bear the reproach that he bore for us. Wow. That's not, you know what, (laughs) the pastors joke about this is a crowd-thinning message when you start talking about this. You know, to, to have to stand up for the Lord to the point of losing your life or being rejected or being outside the camp, that's not popular. That's not fun to preach. But that's the truth, that we may be asked to stand that way as God's people. So start standing now is what I'm saying. Don't wait to stand up until it gets to a crisis. Stand up now wherever you're at. We're called to suffer like Jesus Peter says in 1 Peter, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps, his steps of suffering. And the last subpoint describes people of faith in chapter 11 of Hebrews, people who rejoiced because they've been counted worthy to suffer for the Lord. And then it says they chose mistreatment over the fleeting pleasure of sin. Yes, sin, you know, people want to say sin is bad and it's not fun. I mean, it it even describes in the Bible that there's pleasure in sin. It doesn't make it right, but there's fleeting pleasure in sin. And I mean fleeting. I know. So rather then choose the fleeting pleasure of sin. They chose mistreatment from the world. Sometimes we're called to do that. That's a description of people of faith. That's the community of God through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. And I want you to stand up with me as we close. There's a verse here, and it's not on the screen. But I'm going to say it once, and then I'm going to ask you to say it with me. It's from Acts 4.12. You might have it in your Bible. You might want to turn there, or you might just want to say it with me. Here's what it says. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Great verse, and so true of our community. Say it with me. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for your community, uh, that you would die for us so that we could be part of it, that you call us, that we call on your name. Uh, that you help us through your spirit to live righteously, uh, that you help us to care and and restore through your spirit, Father. Uh, I pray that you make us aware of the enemy. And then, Father, I pray that we would be willing to stand for you, Lord, whatever it takes. In Jesus' name, amen.